I'm David Kern. And I'm Sean Johnson. That's right. It's just the two of us. This is Close Reads. It's a podcast for the incurable reader. And right now we are discussing Walter M. Miller Jr.'s post-apocalyptic fantasy novel, A Cancer for Leibowitz. Uh, Heidi is not here. Uh, she is... Their family's been going through some illnesses, so she's been taking care of her her family and her work, and so we're giving her the week off. So Sean and I are here holding down the fort. I'm dealing with a bit of a upper respiratory thing. The symptoms make it hard to enunciate sometimes. It's weird. I've discovered that. That or I'm having a... My brain is fading into oblivion. Sean, how are you? You know, I think by comparison, I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing by not not by comparison? <laughs> I'm still doing pretty well. Okay, good, good. I'm, yeah, no, I'm, I'm fine. Family, I'm just no like, upper problem. It's just one of those like irritants that last week I had that sore throat. We did the poetry thing and I didn't really talk much. And then it's just kind of like <laughs> my throat doesn't hurt so much, but it's just like all these just weird symptoms, you know, that linger and linger when you get some kind of a, probably some kind of a virus thing. So, um, yeah. but we're here. We're here to talk yeah. about a canticle for Leibowitz. Um, we're going to discuss chapters nine through 15. It being just the two of us may not be as long an episode as normal. Uh, we may run out of things to say. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe not. Maybe maybe we will. maybe we'll have more to say. Sean, do you want to do? I didn't ask you to do this ahead of time. I never do. Do you want to do a quick summary, <laughs> very briefly, of what this what happens in this section for people who may be not reading it exactly according to the reading schedule of the that we posted? I'd be happy to. Uh, we yeah, because our reading straddled. The yeah, end of the, two the parts, first yeah. section and the beginning of part two. That's right. Uh, so uh, we have uh, part one, Fiat Homo, concluding with uh, Brother Francis's journey to New Rome, where he is uh, awed by the beauty and holiness and grandeur that is uh, New Rome. Uh, and he gets to meet the Pope. Uh, Leibowitz is officially canonized as a saint. And uh, then Brother Francis, um, well, in uh, I forgot, on the way to New Rome, Brother Francis is robbed. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, that's robbers. kind of important. Yeah, yeah that's right. That the robbers uh, take the more valuable seeming, I mean, in terms of, you know, street cred, probably the more valuable uh, yeah. copy, the yeah. illuminated, the illuminated copy of the blueprint that he has made. And leave him the original, uh, mistaking it for the copy. And uh, the Pope generously provides him with the money to buy back the illuminated copy on his journey home. Uh, but as he's sitting and waiting uh, for said robber to reappear, he's <laughs> killed and cannibalized by uh, some mutant robbers. Yeah. Uh, at which, which point, frankly, was. The warned that was going to happen many pages ago. Yeah, right? It was yeah. previewed. <laughs> Foreshadowed. Uh, exactly, that's right. And then the uh, the mysterious pilgrim reappears and buries him, and that's the end of that. And then uh, we and part two. this transition into part two, about 400 years pass, and now uh, there's a war brewing, uh, some large there were rumors have of grown war. up. That's right. Wars and rumors of wars. And caught in the middle of this is the uh, Leibowitzian monastery, who's uh, now got to play host to 
um, some hotshot science guy. <laughs> come on. <laughs> hotshot science guys who wants to come and uh, rifle through their papers and see if, in fact, they do have any uh, anything of value from the the world that was before the apocalypse. And um, meanwhile, in the basement of the Abbey, uh, an enterprising young uh, monk and admirer of said science guy is building a, a lamp and a dynamo. Said, said the science guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And the lamp works on testing, but the Abbey right. is on his way out, basically. Not doing so right. Yeah, he's not... Not doing so hot. Wonder so, if that's a metaphor. <laughs> I wonder. Yeah. So there's a number of things that are interesting to to think about here, as as with any great book. But one thing I wanted to ask you about is the sort of change of point of view, because it's it's a it's a fine line. It's it's difficult work to present. You know the first third or quarter of your book, or hundred pages or so, from the perspective of this brother Francis, who we have come to root for we've come to hope the best for we've seen him start as a 17 year old kid kind of never really work his way up but establish himself find a sort of purpose fulfill some of his dreams and his goals um always be a little bit a character who we have this sort of pathos for because he is always feeling less than he's always anxious you know there's all these things that make us pull for him Right. And then at the end of the part, Thwappy gets an arrow to the, between the eyes and he just does away with him. Miller just does away with him and the part ends. And then all of a sudden we're told within a page that's 400 pages or 400 years have passed. And we get, and then we're not even sure who the new perspective is in the second section. We have this Dom, right. uh, Apollo. Dom, yeah. And then we also, yeah. And then we also have this Marcus Apollo character. And uh, so there's, we're not we we're kind of on like not very firm ground in this section second section <laughs> yeah. as far as who everybody is and we've just spent this whole section getting to the point where we felt like oh we kind of know what this story is and then it's not that I, it's too simple to just say why does he do that because i think he does that because it's the book that he wants to tell but that's a difficult yeah. thing to pull off do you think that he manages to pull that off? You've read this before, so maybe you're you feel like you're on sure ground because you know what's coming. Um, but as someone who's reading it for the first time, I feel a little lost at sea or adrift in the desert, as it were. Uh, yeah, it's funny that you asked that because I was thinking about asking you a similar question about the transition between the two the two parts and how they how they feel, whether they feel the same or continuous continuous yeah whether there's there's a continuity between them and tone um so maybe we can we can circle back around to that but i think that i think that uh it i mean it is a, a an interesting choice as as someone who well as a reader who has become attached to brother francis i think you do it is a frustrating choice that he decides to kill him off right when essentially in two pages he's killing off everybody anyway and if there's a 400 right. year time jump every character you knew is dead uh with one with one notable exception, exception. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah uh but yeah so there is there is something 
I think obviously that it's a calculated move to show us the killing of Brother Francis. And I think it, I think it, I think it works if he's doing what I think he's doing. And that is uh, sort of cementing the, the, the character of the world in that, in that time. And at the end of that episode, uh, it's still wild and chaotic and unpredictable and it's not really safe. Uh, and there's, it also leaves open a question about divine providence, uh, which mm. I think comes up subtly again already in this week's reading. All right. So many things seem to have worked out well uh, or worked out so well that it would be hard not to see the hand of providence in orchestrating those events as brother Francis, or as the Pope even tells Francis, right? Don't think that you wasted all this time. Yeah. It was time well spent. There was a purpose to everything you did. And so <laughs> having Francis then die in the end, I think it raises a question for the reader. Is this a world in which divine providence is actually at work? Were the, or were those just lucky coincidences that got, <laughs> uh, got Francis to where he he ended up or is it a divine providence that is uh orchestrating some large project but uh, a project that's willing to sacrifice you know the, uh, hmm. the the small individuals and and i think that maybe even that has to be contrasted with what francis himself imagines the life of the monk to be so there's uh, there's that section. Oh, let me find it. It's it's early in chapter eight when he is working. I think he's he's considering the time that he's spending on his project, the illumination, mm -hmm. and he's he thinks to himself, uh, "It will be the labor of many years, but in a dark sea of centuries, wherein nothing seemed to flow, a lifetime was only a brief eddy, even for the man who lived it." There was the tedium of repeated days and repeated seasons. Then there were aches and pains. Finally, extreme unction in a moment of blackness at the end or at the beginning, rather. For then the small shriveling, shivering soul who had endured the tedium, endured it badly or well, would find itself in a place of light, find itself absorbed in the burning gaze of infinitely compassionate eyes as it stood before the just one. And then the king would say, come, or the king would say, go. And only for that moment had the tedium of years existed. It would be hard to believe differently during such an age as Francis knew. Hmm. So if you, I think if you accept that viewpoint of Francis's, then even his death is not that big a deal, especially in light hmm. of the, the great success that he's just enjoyed. That the, but that whatever he was working on in life, at least in this passage, he considers even that to be just part of the tedium before before death and the beginning of the real life or the next mm. greater life. Uh, so it, also, it, it forces all of those questions into that one moment, <clears throat> I think. Uh, so, I, it, you know, it it's frustrating and sad as a reader who's attached to Francis, but I think it, it works really well. It also kind of reveals to us that it's not a book about the characters as much as it is about like right. history itself. You know, it, it doesn't really try to even tell us that it's about a specific 
time and place. He's choosing these particular characters, but it's about it's about how history like is cyclical. It seems. I mean, when you read this yeah. section, the second section, it feels like you're reading, you know, the story something out of like a, a novel about the 1830s. You know, the right. way he talks about war in that part of the that region of the world, and and um, <clears throat> could be like a Spanish, you know, mission in New Mexico yeah. or or California or something. Um and, and in the way they talk about war and soldiers and troops and um these the places, you know, this the settlements of Colorado and, you know, um it, it, so so the book seems to be signaling to us that it's it's about the cyclical nature of history as much as it is anything, about as much as it is about any one character. And Francis just sort of um happens to be uh, living during one cycle, but the question I have is: Does that make Francis like symbolic of something? Does you just kind of does he become like a, a synecdoche or something, <laughs> um, or or is uh, he meant to be like an actual a true individual? I I don't think that you have to. I don't think you have to choose necessarily. Uh, I think on a on a practical level, it, it is also useful to kill him off because it, it shakes us loose and lets us embrace that idea that the book is not about one particular character. But then I think he can be an individual and be uh, some kind of metaphorical synecdoche. Uh, it, in our, at once, one point in our reading this week, there was a passing reference to the divine comedy, uh, which yeah. is famous for famous for being written intentionally to be like scripture in that it is both literal and allegorical. Mm. Uh, so I, not to say that Miller is uh, consciously doing something that ambitious on that scale, but um, I, I think it's possible to, to create a character that seems developed and fully orbed uh, or at least, you know, largely realized. Uh, who can still stand for something else. So the fact that he's killed off might mean, might be meant to mean the end or the death of something. Yeah. Do you, okay. So, so you asked earlier about the tone, like, does this, does the tone maintain itself in the second part? Yeah. Or, or even what, what kind of a shift do you sense? Well, are you, is that a leading question? It's not, no, it's an <laughs> alternative question, right? If I just from things that you've already said, it seems like you feel there's some shift. And I, I think maybe I would say that there's, that there is too, but uh, maybe from what to what? Yeah. I mean, I think tonally is interesting because I, I think there's some, there are a lot of tonal consistencies. There's this sort of wry humor, a sort of dark, we talked about it last week, like a dark Cohen brothers sort of humor in it. Um, all these these scenes were just the strangest things happen, and it's presented as if they're meant to be humorous, or as if uh, the author is the least considers them humorous. Um, yeah, and so that is certainly there. Um, I do think that trying to get a sense of, you know, when you get presented with a second part the way we did, once in that first part we had a real clear sense of what Brother Francis was after and what the story was about and what what the the problem was and what the the world 
is uh, facing. Even through fifth, chapter 15, I would say that's not real clear. And the, there's like more yeah. mystery, more confusion. Um, we don't really understand yeah, who intrigue. the side. Yeah, we don't even understand who the sides are in this yeah. potential wars, the rumors of wars. Um, we sort of know where they are, of course, but we don't really know why they're fighting, what they want. We know that it's 500 years later, 600 years later, or whatever it is. The more people are literate, that they're literate because largely the largely because the monastery uh, and and the monks have preserved the culture that they've 100 years later they got a, or 100 years previously they got a printing press and now they're working on electric lamps and things like that. So we all of that's clear, but there's this big this like the stakes have changed a little bit and it's hard to know exactly what they are and what i will say though is that i find his the way he crafts this this the the what's the word the plot details um um what's the word that i'm looking for um i don't know exactly what it is but he'll, he'll so like we get in chapter 12 we're just dropped into two chapters of Chapter 12 and 13 are just two chapters of dialogue between people who we've yeah. never met before. We don't know what their purposes are, what their goals are. And then, like, at chapter 14, all of a sudden, he starts kind of telling us what had happened over the centuries. Uh, and so that starts to sharpen it for us. But he really leaves us out in the cold. He doesn't give us a lot to grasp onto. And that's, I think, a really interesting choice. I'm not suggesting that it's a flaw, but I am curious what you think his purposes are there and whether i mean i imagine that's a place where a lot of people get bogged down especially well if not in all the detail at times yeah so, so what do you think about that uh do you know what i'm saying i do know what you're saying i don't know that i don't know that that's too different from the first third though uh, it's not there's yeah the the exposition of that's the, the background word. Ah, yes, exposition. That's it. Uh, the exposition of the background story, I think, is gradual and slow in coming in the first part, too. Uh, so you, you're dumped into immediate events. Sure. Yeah. 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 And, then, he does. and then the rest is pieced together. Yeah. But that's kind of my uh, point is that and, hit, that strategy asks a lot of the reader, especially once you've yeah. come to finally get your bearing and really like this character, the Francis. Yeah. Yeah. I think though that well, I I like that that seems to uh, make the world real in the sense that the world of the novel is also still uh, sort of disconnected and a little bit disordered, uh, and so you you get a sense of uh, what it must be like to to live and exist in that world when the the story itself comes together in this fragmentary way fragmentary way mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense it's there's an objective correlative there i yeah, not here but we can still say it i agree <laughs> can't believe you missed that one so do you like what in this particular passage we've got these uh, sections for today you know the, the the beginning of part two into chapter 15 which characters yeah. stand out the most for you? I mean, we've got this Marcus Apollo character. We've got the, you know, the the scientist character who you uh, think you know you were insulting a little bit ago. Um, <laughs> we've got um, our uh, Dom Paolo character. Yeah. Who who for you is most compelling? 
Thon, I mean, I Thontadio, is that his name? Thontadio. I don't love Thontadio. And maybe I'm just bringing a prejudice into it, but I don't, I don't know that you're supposed to. Although uh, I, have, I have read things about this novel before where... You have read things about it? Uh, I've read yeah. things about this, oh, or yeah. I've read, read writings about this novel where uh, Fontadio is presented as kind of a heroic figure. That uh, he is, hmm. uh, you know, someone like a, like a Newton or a Tesla, uh, but in the, or I you don't know, like an Albert the Great or something, <laughs> trying yeah. to bring light into the dark ages and uh, being uh, rebuffed at every turn by these uh, ignorant, benighted people. Uh, in the church. I think, I, yeah, that's right. Which I think is just a, a misreading of the of the book because it seems like in the pages of the novel he's really kind of a tool. But uh, but uh, as Marcus Apollo I think says at some point he he means well. Uh, I yeah, well, I think the you, roads of hell and all that the streets of hell. That's and exactly so forth. right. That's exactly right. Uh, I like Marcus Apollo. Uh, he's you know he's immediately presented to you as a uh, clever, perceptive, shrewd, uh, but uh, having of a sense of humor. But then he disappears. Yeah, and I think that the compelling character, yeah, I think the compelling character you're left with is Don Paolo, who is truly the man kind of caught in between these two ages, and he's trying to decide how... actually caught between the two ages, though. (laughs) <laughs> well we haven't we haven't caught up he's up yet. on the on the ridge somewhere yeah that's right yeah missing his goat but he's you know it's he really is being torn up inside uh, as he's trying to negotiate the this period of transition uh and uh, he's very reflective about that fact right he thinks back on uh previous abbots and when he's looking at the carving of Leibowitz, right? He thinks about the abbots who have uh, who have left it there in its place and uh, the general practice of kind of the accruing of tradition mm-hmm. and of uh, like the weighing of beauty and value. Uh, and then he has to, um, well, he even points out that the monks have had the capability to create new technologies for a while and haven't done it. Mm-hmm. And he asks yeah. the question of <laughs> corn <whore. laughs> Yeah. Uh, the ironically named, uh, why, why do you think people haven't built this thing before? Uh, and we find out in part one, we hear that the Abbot Arcos refuses to allow a printing press in the monastery. Yeah. Uh, and but then, then got many centuries, yeah. four centuries, many later, centuries yeah. have gone by. Yeah. And then it was, it was just a hundred years prior that they finally got one. Uh, so all of these things that have sort of been held at bay and, uh, Paolo is the guy who finds himself in that moment where, uh, you know, maybe those, those ideas whose time have come, uh, is, uh, hard to, hard to keep in check any longer. Do you find, um, what's his name? The, the, the guy that the arm, arm brister. Uh, yeah. Arm, arm. Yeah. Arm. 
something like anyway, that. Anyway, that guy. Yeah. He's the guy that's kind of pushing back against Cornhorus. Cornhorus. Uh, right. Right. He's the the grumpy march, librarian. March Arm towards Bruce. progressive. Arm Brewster. Yeah. Yeah. And, Arm um, Brewster. Yeah. Do you does the book is the book sympathizing with him? Do you think? It's interesting how it doesn't seem to come down on one side or the other on issues like this, unless unless I'm reading it wrong. Because because we're going through Dom Paolo's perspective, and he's conflicted yeah. on what to do. It seems like the book wants us also to be conflicted on is Corn Hauer or horror or whatever is he a um, is he a hero? You know, is he like the Newton type character for for his right. his, his detailed um, difficult work? Um, the the labor that he's putting in, um, you know, to make a better future, um, or is he in doing that rejecting something that the monastery held dear and that is actually what they have been trying to preserve? Um, and Armbrister, of course, represents the idea that prog- not all progress is is good. Um, yeah. But does the book? Do you think the book is coming down on one side or the other on that? I I think. My my theory is that you can discern some sort of value judgment in the novel, but that it's very subtle, and that I think it it is so subtle that the book kind of becomes a Rorschach test, and you have a lot of people who read it in different ways. Uh, like there are some people who love science fiction and hate this book because it's too religious, uh, and there are some people who... Uh, love this book because it's really a religious novel and it's not even really science fiction. Uh, and, <laughs> and there are people who who love it because it's making fun of religion. And there are some people who love it because it's you know celebrating religion. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that I think that the characters and the positions are uh, painted believably, and then the narrative voice is um, n- largely non-judgmental. Uh, so that you are kind of left having to That's true, decide. But, but the the degree to which it's it's wry to use the word I used earlier, it's almost there's almost an ironic detachment in yeah. the narrator that I think makes that complicated. I it, think that's it's, right. It's, it's non judgmental, at... but it's wry, which is not right. to be yeah, non judgmental. <laughs> but not to be, but to let your judgment be implicit rather than explicit. Yeah, that's that's true. There's a, like there's a tonal yeah. judgment happening. Yeah. So I think, I mean, it's really clever then. You you have Don Paolo, who's sort of in between. Then uh, Arm Brewster is gruff, but maybe more sympathetic. And Cornhower, I think, is meant to be kind of the, the butt of the winking joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there are things like his... Um, it suggested, I can't remember if it's in the in the thoughts of the abbot, that maybe Cornhor only ever became a monk because of his scientific aspirations and not because he uh, has an affection for the things of God. Uh, and then, right, he's very quick and eager to displace the image of God and hang the lamp in its place. Yeah. Uh, so he, he's definitely painted as at odds with whatever the mission of the monastery is. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, and and uh, I don't think we're meant to find him super likable. <laughs> the interesting thing is that whether the whatever side of the book comes down on, it agrees that there. It seems to assert that w- what's happening right now is 
is of vital importance. Um, like history yeah. is will turn on the choices that characters like these guys make. Uh, you know, the future of mankind depends on what happens. So it's really interesting to to assert that to create a world in which that is true, and yet come at it with this really wry perspective. To come yeah. at it with that sense of humor, I think is is fascinating because in some ways it could distract from the seriousness of what's going on. Do you think that he accomplishes Miller does that 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 balance there that? And if so, why does he uh, decide to walk that tightrope? Is it just that he was a wry guy, or uh, or is is being wry, is being ironic, is bringing a sense of humor to it, essential to the telling of this particular story? Uh, I I want to say that it's it's essential to telling the story because of the distance it creates. Uh, so the I think you you already mentioned that the the world is going to be changed by the choices that these characters make and i think the the aspect of free choice is really important but the the one of the big questions the novel handles is whether history is doomed to repeat itself and or whether uh, men are doomed to repeat their own their history yeah yeah uh, or whether uh, whether they repeat it or not is the result of their own free choices. And the abbot even, uh, he thinks something like that. Uh, he's, he thinks about the, uh, he's thinking about the devil. Yeah. Or thinking in terms of the, the devil sort of manipulating progress. Mm -hmm. And then he rebukes himself and says uh, something like, well, let's not, Sure. Yeah, but there is the devil. But let's not give him all the credit. Uh, as Which if to say, right, men, to men make their choices. Devil's advocate character who comes to That's Francis right. in the first section to push back on the notion of Leibovitz becoming a saint. The Diablo. Yeah, that's right. I don't remember what the Latin is for it, but Advocati. Yeah, the, the devil's advocate. Yeah, yeah. So the um, that this idea that the devil isn't all powerful, uh, that terrible things are done largely by the men who choose to do them or choose maybe not the terrible things, but make choices that lead to the terrible things. Uh, and so I think that the, those choices feel like they matter more uh, or they're more fraught if the narrator is able to distance himself a little bit, even in tone mm. from the, the characters making the choices mm. uh, that's not to say that that the novel doesn't ultimately come down somewhere, though. Yeah, which we'll talk about. Um, yeah, without giving away too much plot, what would you say people should look out for in terms of you know, like what this section is trying to accomplish? Like, what is this section? You know, last section we knew it was about Francis discovers these relics. On the one hand, is Francis crazy? On the other, can he finish this work that he's going to do? Is he going to become a full? monk at the monasteries you know it, it, how is it going to shape his life because it was so tied to this one guy it's easy to latch on to here because it's not it's a little bit less so as i talked about earlier so how would you tell yeah. recommend people uh read this this particular section i know there's we're gonna have another jump in time uh later um, yeah 
remember exactly what chapter it is, but um, we'll have to just maybe have the same discussion then. It's at the end of 23. So we still have another 100 pages or so right. before that. Um, what do you think? I, I think that the the maybe the most helpful thing to do there is think of the the work or the project of the order as maybe the central character. Uh, right? You don't have consistent human characters mm. with the possible exception. <laughs> uh, but um, that might help give some consistency in the way you think about the novel uh, because I think the value, the function of the uh, the order of Leibowitz and their, their project uh, is one that is questioned and weighed and evaluated throughout the novel. Uh, and it's, and you see it at different, that's part of what the time jumps allow is for you to see that project at different points in its, in its own history. And, um, and yeah, whether, whether it's a worthwhile enterprise, uh, whether it was, um, even an enterprise that should have been undertaken at all, I are think there, is a, a big question. Are there any ways in which you think that the, that the, um, the order has clearly changed over these, these centuries, besides the fact that they're looking into electricity and like are more trusting of technology in general. Are there some, any other ways that you would say that it's changed? Like what is the central kind of conflict or, or goal um, in, in this order and, and has it altered at all since Francis's untimely demise? Uh, what do you think? <laughs> um, <laughs> Reverse. Well, it, it seems like they were more, you know, the notion of what it means to be literate um, and the value of literacy has, the, their work in that field, as it were, ha, has caught on, right? Like people, 8% of the one village, for example, are becoming literate. So over 600 years, their their work is meaning something. And so it seems like that's maybe sharpening or not sharpening, changing the scope of what they're after. And so now, you, now like, so what did these old things mean? What did these old like <laughs> blueprints mean? What did these old maps mean? What is, what, are, what is this thing that meant so much to people thousands of years ago? Um, and can it still mean something to us now? They're like more willing to be, to venture deeper into that. Um, and yet they're still ultimately, consumed with the notion of how do we presume preserve culture there's that bit where it says at the end of the first part that the people were smug in their illiteracy yeah they were content or comfortable and, and, and smug in their illiteracy um, which i found like boy in some ways that feels like our own time um, <laughs> right. like we're and all smug and how little and how little we know and yet we have more information than ever um, yeah. Uh, well, and yeah, we don't we don't really know what to actually preserve. And here, these monks are like preserving. They're after, they're they're doing the work of preserving specific things that they can barely get their fingers on. Here, six hundred years later, again, that scope is expanding, and and like they have to begin thinking more broadly about the the danger of what they're doing. This it's not wholly good perhaps is yeah. what they may, what they may was what seems to be possibly weighing on Armbruster and Don Paolo. You know, that's in a way that seems like, Oh, that's what's actually eating at his insides. Right. There's something 
<laughs> off about it. You know, it doesn't seem like before they were tormented by the difficulty of the work that they were doing, but wholeheartedly convinced of its necessity, right? They were going to preserve culture, future generations. Hopefully somebody somewhere will learn something by what we've done is essentially what the Pope <laughs> tells Francis, right? Yeah, but, true. but now that the work is beginning to actually mean something and the scope grows, it becomes more complicated endeavor. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so in, in that way, I think that the, the change in the order mimics uh, a real you know, historical progression in, in the history of Christendom or monasticism. Uh, and that there were times of crisis when uh, preservation was the main goal. And then times of relative peace where uh, then you can sort of look look ahead or look out where you can broaden your gaze and yeah, uh, yeah. right yeah so you see the, the order of Leibowitz finally turning to look at what they have and begin to interpret it rather than simply try to keep it in existence so that one the day someone can come along and far enough it. in the in the be, in that's the, right in the, in the distance yeah you can you can open the books you can set out the pretty things again uh, but the the interesting difference here is that whereas in our own history, the monastic traditions were typically choosing, they were uh, knowingly selecting what they preserved uh, and understanding what they preserved. And so they were making value judgments as they, you know, about what was worth preserving. Mm. Uh, here, that's not the case, right? The abbot uh, is very clear about the fact that they didn't know the the value or even the meaning of many of the things that they were preserving. They were like they were copying down grocery lists, and, right, and blueprints yeah. for squirrel traps and whatever, uh, uh, in the hopes that someone someday would again have the ability to understand them. Uh, so then, I think it is a more terrifying prospect once that understanding comes. Uh, when you don't know what it is you have preserved. Right. Yeah. Could it ultimately destroy everything? Yeah. Could the thing that you have been preserving be the thing that destroys everything that you have built since during the age of preservation? Yeah, that's right. Um, We're going to talk about, I mean, I guess the rest of this, this next episode is the rest of this, or at least covers a lot of this next section. I don't think it's all of it. It's the, it's like the, a big section of the book is the longest section. So given that, yeah. what should people look out for as we kind of think about wrapping up this conversation? Now, this episode is not going to be as long as normal uh, in part because I'm only like 50% ability to talk and Heidi's not here. So um, <laughs> I'm going to wrap it up a little bit early, but um, what do you, what should people look out for as they, as this section goes on and, and, and does take up like when an author makes a section, this, this, uh, this long con compared to the other ones, that seems uh, yeah. that seems important. You know, something's going on. So the the title of this section is um, Fiat Looks. Fiat yeah, looks. Fiat Looks. Right. Uh, let there let there be light. And so the I guess then what you should be looking out for is the 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 source of light, where light's coming from, what it's illuminating. I think this is to go circle back to some our earlier conversation. I think this section is the most 
uh, allegorical in the sense that though the characters are themselves, they are also uh, representative of different forces and ideas. Uh, and I mean, it's called, <laughs> it's called Let There Be Light. And one of the main interpersonal conflicts that we have read about so far is the creation of an actual lamp yeah. light source. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so the, the question is, is the light needed? Uh, are some lights better than others? The abbot asks, can't we get this? Can't we get uh, electrical essences from uh, goat fat or whatever? And then they have the conversation uh, where they're like, we could be, maybe they even use these uh, on the altar on the instead of, instead yeah. of candles. And he just kind of shuts it down. Get the, <laughs> yeah, behind and, me so Satan. The, and the, I, the, I think it's interesting to ask of every reader too, at that point, uh, is there, does the abbot have a sympathetic point? Uh, is every light equal? Uh, because even today, right, we have all manner of uh, lights there. You know, they're, half the cars on the road have these headlights that blind me when I pass them at night. <laughs> yeah, right, we, yeah. we know how to make a light. Uh, yeah. But no one's putting electric light, I, you know, I, God willing, I guess, no one's putting electric lights on their altars. Uh, so there's still something about you know, the, the candle and the flame and that kind of light that seems the, the sensory um, experience of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so there's, there's the issue of pragmatism and, uh, you know, the age old Jurassic park question, <laughs> they, you know, they asking what is possible and not, uh, whether they uh, should do a thing, right, uh, yeah. what's permissible. And, um, yeah. And then what, what is the, what is the light illuminating, right? But this thing that they have been preserving so carefully is now coming into the light where it can be understood and it can be acted upon. And, um, uh, is that, is that a good thing? Yeah. Yeah. Who's your favorite character in this section? I kind of asked you that already, but I'm curious, like I didn't ask it in that way. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, I think it's Don Paulo. The, I think the conflict inside of him and the yeah. the sense of foreboding that he he wants to wrestle with, uh, he wants to put his finger on, but is also you know afraid to to face right out. Uh, it makes him a very compelling, sympathetic character. Can't tell if I can't decide if I think the you know the the thing that's eating him inside is a little bit uh, on the nose or not. But uh, <laughs> but also, you know, I suppose there were plenty of mystics who write about similar things. So <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I like the contrast. The, like the first abbot we met was uh, this tough, imposing, very sure of himself. Yeah, uh, you know, like animalistic figure. Like he's he's be, always being compared to or resembling bears and wolves and, and things and um yeah, arcos yeah. abbot arcos yeah uh, and so in a time when that wasn't really needed uh at the the monastery doesn't encounter any anything any situation that we see that seems to demand a man like that i mean he is also shrewd and he gets the uh he steers the ship through the canonization process in a, in a 
in a shrewd and successful way, but uh, right. he seems like a man of war in a time when there isn't a lot of <laughs> war going on. And then by contrast, here there's this moment of extreme tension and potential and uh, decision. Uh, and we are given Don Paulo, who is also uh, maybe even more so a sympathetic figure, but he's not a strong man. Uh, we, he's we like if Francis his... had worked his way up to in the inner role. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's even, even in the sense that he is very passive in his leadership, right? He has, he has, it seems strong ideas and, uh, and a clear vision. He has, he's shrewd in his sight. He can read people well, uh, but he doesn't impose his will on very many people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the animals because in this section, it's more like he is being set upon by animals is more of the comparison. Yeah. It, there's that, yeah. there's a chapter where it says the abbot fanned himself with a fan of buzzard feathers, but the breeze was not cooling. The buzzards looming over these sections are obviously like, they're one of the things that tie the sections together because they kind of right. are eating Francis and then they keep showing up in this section as well. Um, the air from the window was like an oven's breath off the scorched desert, adding to the discomfort caused him by whatever devil or ruthless angel was fiddling around with his belly. It was the kind of heat that hints of lurking danger from sun-crazed rattlers and brooding thunderstorms over the mountains, or rabid dogs and tempers made vicious by the scorch made the cramping worse. So he's being set upon in a way that Arcos was not. He had he had control over the yeah. situation. He was the animal. Dom Paolo is the animal is is, is after him and he and he yeah. feels it in a way that Francis sort of did um <clears throat> so that's that's uh that's interesting um writing yeah he is he puts the, that together yeah that he and Francis are the two fainting characters so <laughs> yeah right yeah one of the best parts is when the Pope he, he says something like you're about to go to the Pope he says don't faint and then when he tells him he's going to go to the pump he just says it just says oh and then it says and then the next thing it says is he helped him up off the floor later <laughs> it's like that's the kind of yeah, stuff that is, is really humorous oh yeah and when he's in the Pope's presence and he feels himself get lightheaded <laughs> he's like oh I, 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 Teddy kill me if I if I fainted yeah <clears throat> alright well any final thoughts uh, you know, one thing that we didn't get to talk about, and um, I don't know that it's worth having a conversation about, but it's worth at least throwing out and noting in case the, the trend continues, is one of the one of the marked features of uh, Francis's visit to New Rome was the the kind of double vision of the place and the people uh, that he's overawed by the spectacle and even by the presence of the Pope himself, uh, and then when the Pope appears to wink at him, all of a sudden this veil is drawn back and he says he sees some, you know, some moth holes in the Pope's clothing. And then when he's uh, taken back yeah. uh, through the Basilica by the he's, Monsignor, yeah, he, he sees, sees damage and yeah, crack poverty plaster. And, and uh, this was not a rich age uh, for the church. It says, <laughs> right. But it's the contrast isn't of all the things that are sort of, made fun of or wryly poked at in the novel, that contrast doesn't seem to be the, the butt of a joke and it's not presented cynically. It just is. 
Yeah. And I, I thought that was, that was very interesting when it could have potentially been, um, you know, the see, see the reality that's behind all of this, uh, you know, flashy outward trappings. Uh, but that's not the way that Miller approaches it. And so the contrast is left as sort of, uh, uh, two sides of maybe a reality that exists together. And, um, yeah, who's to say what that means? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to end the episode with who's to say what that means. Um, well, Sean, thank you. This has been, this is a really interesting book. Um, I'm excited to hear what Heidi thought about this section and, and the transition between yeah, the, the two sections as well. Um, we will be uh, continuing this conversation next week, of course, and everyone should be back. I, I, I we hope. Um, God willing. Uh, yeah, hopefully everybody's feeling all right. Um, Heidi's kids will hopefully feel better. We'll be discussing chapters sixteen through twenty-four. Uh, so we've got two more episodes on 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 the book, and then the Q and A at the end. Um, and then after this, we will end the year with "Things Fall Apart" by uh, Ashebi. I believe is how you pronounce his last name. Um, so yeah. we're coming up on the end of the year. Um, I'm starting to have it. to write end of the year book lists and things like that that people are asking <laughs> for. So yeah, it's a little early for that. And my, you know, for me to get my head around that, but nonetheless, you know, deadlines are what they are. Um, it's coming. so, uh, we'll of course have our, um, end of the year episode. And then, you know, we still have our Christian Lavrenzotter episodes. Uh, the first one on that's, uh, up and then we'll have another one next week. Um, well, actually, this week, because this episode will go up on, on Monday, uh, the 6th, I believe. So then we'll have, but you know, this Friday, we'll have another Christian Lavrenzotter episode up, and uh, as well as short fiction focus and our movie episodes and lots of great content on Close Reads HQ. So uh, check that out at closereads.substack.com. Um, Sean, thanks so much. Thank you. For Sean Johnson and for Heidi White. You know, and I'll also say for Tim McIntosh, Heidi's not here, but you know, we're just going to mention, you know, Tim, Tim while we're at it too. Uh, so for everybody, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening until next time. Happy reading.